From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Today on the Maddie Report, we're going to take a comprehensive look at water issues in the Valley. We're then going to get an update on the key source of Valley water, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, and learn whether the governor's Twin Tunnels project is going according to plan. The San Joaquin Valley, one of the nation's most important agricultural regions, is dealing with growing water stress and a number of related environmental and public health challenges. Large parts of the valley, for example, have become increasingly dependent on unsustainable groundwater pumping. How do we tackle the valley's water issues in a cooperative, coordinated manner? We'll ask our guest, Ellen Hannock, director of the Water Policy Center for the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California and lead author of a report entitled, Water Stress and the Changing San Joaquin Valley. The San Joaquin Valley's Water Challenges, a comprehensive review. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Maddie. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Water is the foundation of America's most productive farmland, California's San Joaquin Valley. Recently, the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California published a comprehensive report dealing with the va- valley's growing water imbalance and what it means for, not only for valley agriculture, but the valley's environment and public health. Ellen Hannock, the director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center and the author of that report, is our guest. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. So, how did the ag industry become so dominant in the San Joaquin Valley? Yeah. Ag has really been a key industry in the San Joaquin Valley since the 19th century. And it's continued to really be a, a big part of the economy, even to, the day, to this it's, day. It's changed over time, though, hasn't it? It has changed a lot. It continues to change. It's a very dynamic and creative sector. It used to be cotton was, was very, very big, and now that's not so much. Other, other crops are more important. Even, you know, you go not that far back, 1980, there were over a million acres of cotton irrigated and now it's we're down to you know practically trace amounts of, of cotton what's happened over time since then is big expansion in orchards both for nuts and for for almonds. fruits almonds you know you drive around right now they're in flower they're uh-huh. beautiful um, and also um, big expansion in dairy yeah. and the crops related to that. So uh, there's kind of some confusion about the size of farms. Are they large? Are they small? Are they some kind of combination? All of the above, yeah. We were quite surprised to see this actually. There are about 20,000 irrigated farms in the eight county San Joaquin Valley. And so uh, the the acreage you're talking about, I think you said in your report that farms with less than 500 acres are about 25 percent? That's right. Irrigated uh, farms. So it's not as large as maybe some people think. Uh, well, you know, right. So you've had some consolidation happening over time, and there are some very big farms, but there's still just a lot of farms that are not that big. Actually, one of the biggest categories is quite tiny farms of 10 acres or less. Yeah, but they're very important for some of the local economies. Exactly, and for some communities. Yeah. You know, your farmer's markets, those are often going to be those little farms. Yeah, and those are increasingly cropping up, no pun intended, you know, in the area. Um, let me ask you about how farmers are doing economically. Are they doing well or so, not so well? you know, farming is one of those risky jobs in the sense that, you know, you've got to worry about all your inputs, but then you also got to worry about what's going to happen to your crop prices. And those move around a lot. 
But I can say that, you know, over time, revenues have been increasing. Inflation-adjusted revenues have been increasing quite a bit in the Valley, and that's because of these crop shifts. And, you know, people like the, the, the both California national and international markets like California products. I'm just, I'm just wondering, I don't, I don't want to get too far afield here, but just the, uh, the situation with the trade with, with other countries, that's going to really impact California agriculture, I assume. It could, you know. I think California Ag would like the market to stay open for California produce. A lot of the stuff ends up in Asia, and so uh, mm-hmm. that, that's going to have some big implications. You know, uh, the, what are some of the new management challenges uh, that have come about as a result of, you know, different crops, you've got increased dairies, and, and frankly, the growing vulnerability to water scarcity? Right. So, you know, Valley's a great place for agriculture if you can add the water, because it's pretty dry here in the summer. Um, that means you can manage crops very well if you can add the water, but water is a scarce uh, commodity here, and it's going to become scarcer over time as the region has to get its groundwater basin into balance. So you've got, so you've got uh, situations where the w- price of water is going up. Farmers are making a decision, probably an economic decision, based on what's the most, you know, uh, the one that's going to produce the most money, most revenue right. per acre, I suppose. Right. And so definitely uh, Valley Ag is becoming more water efficient, both in terms of the irrigation technology, but also how many dollars each drop of water is, is generating. And that's the crop choices especially. It, it also impacts, you know, the stuff that we have in the Valley. We have, you know, vineyards and we have, you know, trees um, and we also have just field crops. Mm-hmm. I assume that that's also an implication here with, with less water or water scarcity. Well, right. So it's kind of this trade-off because farmers have gone more toward the the orchards and the vineyards because that generates a lot of revenue per unit of of water. But you also cannot fallow that in in a year where water is really tight. So during this recent drought, that was a lot of farmers were really on pins and needles about that. Fortunately, many of them could pump extra groundwater. But still, you, you saw some some of that land coming out of production because there's an investment once they they get the tree finally producing, and if they have a bad water situation, yeah. they lose that asset. You know, you think about it, we have a drought every summer, right? you got to water those trees, or else they, they don't stick around. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, thanks for that overview of the changing nature of the Valley's agriculture. Up next, uh, what about the issue of growing water scarcity? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepler with the Maddie Institute. One of the many challenges facing San Joaquin Valley agriculture is the issue of water scarcity. Perhaps it's the most important issue. Simply stated, the region has more productive farmland than local water supplies can support. So even importing uh, water from elsewhere has not resolved the water issue. And there's a related problem of groundwater overdraft. We're discussing the Valley's water issues with Ellen Hannock, a a water policy expert with the PPIC. Um, How has water uh, management changed in the Valley over time? So, you know, the valley is a great place to grow things if you can irrigate. Um, And already back in the 1920s, um, folks had started to to pump groundwater. Technology made some good pumping available. And you started to see this problem of more groundwater being taken out of the ground on average every year than the amount that gets naturally recharged from the rain and from being adjacent, adjacent to rivers. So over time, this problem started leading to land sinking. Subsidence, they call it. Subsidence. And and that was actually one of the impetuses for some of the big projects that now deliver water from Northern California through the Delta to the Valley. 
Um, if you're on the west side of the valley, you see the Delta Mendota Canal, California Aqueduct. On the east side, the Friant Kern Canal. Those are projects that are all part of getting surface water to places that were pumping more groundwater. Um, and that's been helpful, but it just hasn't been enough. So, so you're talking in your report about this water balance or imbalance uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. What are the numbers? Where does the water come from and where does it go to in the valley? Right. So we looked for the last 30 years and on average what we found is that a bit over half, 56% comes from local sources and that means the water up in the Sierra coming down through all of the rivers on the east side, all the way you know, down from the Kern all the way up to the San Joaquin and then water that rain, you know, rainfall on the valley floor, that's 56%. That gets used directly so more as... more than half comes from local supplies. More than half, yeah. And that gets used both as surface water and that gets used as, as what we'd call sustainable groundwater because some of it recharges the basins and people pump it out. About a quarter comes from imports. And that is water that comes down from Northern California through the Delta, through uh, the pumps at Tracy, and then goes into canals and goes on to so Valley Farmland. So the Delta is very significant. Very significant. A quarter on average of all the water that is used in the San Joaquin Valley. And then there's a little sliver that gets directly pulled out of the Delta, 6%. And then the rest, 13%, that is what we call groundwater overdraft. Yeah, and you're, you're talking to your report about this diminishing groundwater reserves. Um, what's happening in the valley? So groundwater overdraft is when you're taking out more than the amount that gets recharged. And... What that leads to is the water table falls, so you have to pump deeper and deeper. It means some of the shallow wells go dry. It also can affect your water quality because sometimes deeper water is not uh, in as good shape. It also leads to land sinking or what we call subsidence. So in some places you've got infrastructure that's being damaged Roads, by this. canals. Bridges, I've all also that. heard that, that you know, when the water is taken out, sometimes that formation can collapse, and so you lose that aquifer. It's well, you, you lose some of that, some of that mm -hmm. aquifer. You, we have ginormous aquifers in this valley, mm -hmm. so you're not going to lose the whole thing. Okay, so um, what started this kind of accelerated overdrafting uh, beginning around 2000? So it's been very dry. The, you know, we just got through, I, I'm going to call it and say that we're pretty much through the, 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 the latest drought because it's been so wet this year. But we had five years of, of really dry conditions. But if you look, the whole last 15 years have been drier on average than any time since the 1920s. So there's just been less surface water available to recharge our groundwater basins. That's one. Second is that more water is now coming through the delta and going all the way down to Southern California than before. And this is, you know, fair and square, it's Southern California's water. They have contracts just like folks in the valley do for some of that water. But in the old days, they weren't taking it all. So the farmers were able to get that water. Farmers got it for next to nothing. And now about half a million acre feet are going all the way down to Southern California. So this all resulted in the state law in 2014 regulating uh, managing groundwater. We were one of the last states to actually do that. Um, we were the last western state. The last, behind Texas. Yes, okay, behind so, Texas. So what did, what did that law do? So that law is very uniquely Californian in spirit because it's all about local control. Um, and it, what it says is that folks who are using groundwater at the level of individual groundwater basins have to get together, develop groundwater sustainability agencies to manage that groundwater, 
develop groundwater sustainability plans with a, a long-term plan for bringing that groundwater basin into balance and managing it sustainably, and then they got to implement that. Yeah, sustainability is the key word there, right? I mean, right. something that's going to be able to last over time. Over time. Um, so do you think the groundwater deficit can be closed? It can be closed. Um, it's not going to be easy to close it. Uh, and, and you can think about filling that gap in two ways. One way is adding more water, so bringing in more water from, you know, capturing more water from the, from the Sierra, for example, or, you know, potentially more imports. And then the other way is reducing the amount that you're pumping, so reducing use. And demand, and that can happen all kinds of ways, including changing the crops and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it's especially going to involve probably taking some land out of production. Okay. Oh, well, thanks for discussing that uh, issue of, of groundwater uh, overdrafting. It's a pretty big issue. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Up next, we're going to talk about the environmental and health uh, trade-offs of valley agriculture and what can be done to mitigate them. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hebler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, beyond water scarcity, there are a number of other issues and challenges for valley agriculture. One is uh, the environmental and the other is public health. What are the trade-offs that we have to deal with when we're dealing with this in farming regions? Our guest is Ellen Hannock, director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center. And one of the issues here is water quality, um, particularly nitrate contamination after decades of fertilizer use and dairy manure on fields. Um, how extensive is the problem and what can be done to address it? The problem is pretty extensive, especially in the southern part of the valley, in the Tulare Basin, um, very much tied to where the dairies are right now. Um, and the estimates that came out a couple years ago about this were that there are about 250,000 residents whose water sources are potentially contaminated by nitrate, which is a pretty dangerous thing at high levels. Yeah, that was a pretty big report they did a few years ago. That was a big study, and it was, you know, it was long in coming, really, and it was, you know, a credit to the, the environmental justice community for really pushing to kind of get this on the radar at the state level. And that was, that's about, I think I was reading your report, about 11% of, of that region's population. Correct. And that can cause some serious medical issues, a blue baby syndrome. Blue baby syndrome is the one that, you know, especially, you know, vulnerable populations are always the ones most affected by these kinds of things, and young children especially. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue deals with salt accumulation um, in soils and in groundwater. It causes another problem. Um, what's causing that, and, and how is the problem being addressed? So salt is one of those things, it's, it's a tough one, because some of it is just here. It's in the soil. It's in the water. It's naturally occurring. Naturally occurring. Now, agriculture kind of can stir it up and mobilize it and, and, and accelerate that problem. We also import salt into the valley from the delta. So the same imports that are helpful from a water supply perspective, we're also bringing in some salt with that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the other issue uh, is air quality. So um, there have been noticeable improvements in air quality in the San Joaquin mm -hmm. Valley over the years. It, it still, though, has the worst air quality in the nation. Um, part of this is the natural environment. We live in a, this gigantic bowl um, surrounded by mountains. Uh, and, and there's also this, it's growing, right? So there's more traffic, and mm -hmm. that's causing, uh, contributing to the problem as well. But what about farming operations? What impact did they have on air quality? So if you think about it, you know, farming uh, stirs up the air and there's, there's dust, there's, you know, particulate matter, sort of some of the big particles that can, can cause asthma and, and other, other problems. And so over time, valley agriculture has been, uh, you know, one of the regulated um, industries in order to manage that dust, especially, 
you know, sort of when, when tractors and other farm equipment is moving on fields. Also managing ag waste. So, you know, there was a move toward biodigesters, but that has uh, run into some economic difficulties. Uh, so so those, those are some ongoing things that, that farm managers have to really consider. I was looking at this air quality issue a while ago and, and found that uh, it's actually diesels in the valley. It's diesel engines that are causing the majority of the air quality problem. And mm-hmm. so farms also, I mean, if they're, they've got diesel pumps, Right. Um, they're being retrofitted and changed out. Exactly. They've also got uh, heavy-duty trucks and track old tractors. I mean, some of these tractors, they literally are using these things for 30, 40 years. Sure. You know, they're, they're going to be frugal with their... I, I remember seeing, equipment. actually, I remember seeing, I was driving through the valley, and I saw a tractor that my dad had in the 1970s, and at that point, it was 20 years old. Right. So, so they, they drive them, they double use... Double classics. But they're right. very, the good news is they're very efficient using things and fixing them up and keeping them going. Uh, the problem is there's some air quality issues associated with that. Let's talk about um, some of the other environmental impacts and implications for agriculture. It's not uncommon in agricultural regions that commercial farming you know, transforms the natural environment. It's done it here as well. In, in what ways? So you, you think about it, the valley floor has over 5 million acres of irrigated cropland. At any given time, and in addition, there's some fields that are that are lying fallow. So you know the combined footprint is is, is even larger of agriculture. Um, we've changed the way water moves. You know it doesn't move naturally through rivers anymore. We kind of bring it through canals and change the timing of it. So the land has changed. The water movement has changed, and that has been hard on the the critters that live both in the rivers, in the wetlands, and in the upland areas in the valley. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I was reading somewhere that the, the soil in the valley, actually, they actually rate soil. Uh-huh. And the soil in the valley is among the richest, the best in the world. And so it's not surprising. You had great soil with water and sunshine, mm-hmm. and you have the San Joaquin Valley. Um, so what does the future hold when it comes to the balance of these interests uh, between ag interests and, you know, conservation interests? Where's the future? So I'm an optimist about this, and I think that um, a lot of folks from the various sides of this issue really want to get to find common ground for ways that you can manage farms so that they're making money and also provide some benefits for the environment. And I think you're starting to see this in, in a number of places, sort of pilot pilot work in where, you know, working lands, farmers are making some of their uh, areas available for, for habitat, I think with water, which is water allocation, which is the trickiest and the one people fight over maybe the most, there are ways forward in terms of finding some some kind of compromise solutions that get you multiple benefits, ideally. And we're going to talk about those in a moment, but thank you for talking about these environmental and public health Mm -hmm. trade-offs that we're dealing with. So we're going to talk about some possible solutions in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So how do we balance the water needs of Valley's agriculture with the environmental needs of the region? What approaches show the most promise? We're talking with Ellen Hannock, a water policy expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. It seems to be kind of a simple supply and demand issue here. Um, you know, there's a basic imbalance between the valley's local and imported water supplies and its water demands. So how do we close that gap? Well, you can close it in two ways. You can add some more supplies or you can reduce demand. And my sense is that the solutions are going to vary across the valley because the problems, the extent of the problem is different. Some places have a bigger gap to fill than others. Um, And 
you know, it's going to also depend on what kind of funds people can mobilize to, to, to add the supplies. You know, let, let's talk specifically about groundwater for a mm -hmm. second. What are, what are some of the ways that we can deal with this issue of, of groundwater overdrafting? So everyone across the valley is going to have to develop plans to manage their groundwater basins. Now, there are some basins where if you look at the accounts... Um, as soon as you can say the word accounts, because yeah. I was just thinking as you are talking, it's a bank. It's a bank. It's, it's a water bank. It's a bank. Your water's down there. You know, water. You got inflows coming in, and you got people taking water out. So yeah. it's very much. You have to think about it but like a bank account. But there's more being taken out than it's going in. More, right. So it, so it's it's starting to it's running a deficit, and so in places where you've got that deficit, people are going to have to over time plan on getting that bank account into balance. They don't have to do it overnight, but they're going to have to to make serious progress. So the first key step is actually. Figuring out your numbers, and we don't have good math on all of the. So we really the don't know how much how much water is there, or how much it could hold. Well, or do we? We we have some idea, but what we don't know always is how much is coming out. You know, who's taking? How many straws are in the in the basin, and how much is coming out, and how much is actually actively being put back in? And so, that accounting has to get better. So no, they didn't have to prior to the this law. They didn't have to report that. They didn't have to report it. They didn't have to even measure it. So in some places, they, they haven't been, been measuring that. Um, and, you know, they're going to they're gonna have to do that. Some places are ahead of others on that, I would say, in, across the valley. So how do you suggest we, we manage the groundwater reserves then that we do have? So, you know, I think a key thing is incentivizing people to add more water, to recharge water. So right now we're in a, in a wet uh, year, fortunately, after mm. some years of drought, there's a lot of extra water around. Um, you want to get that into the ground. And you can get that into the ground through recharge basins, which are n places that are really good for water seeping into the ground. Usually on the periphery of a town. Often on uh -huh. the periphery of a town, sometimes right in town. It's like <laughs> Fresno has some... We do. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you want to make sure you manage those and you protect those areas so that they, they're available for that. But then you also need to use farmland because there's a lot of it. There are 5 million acres out there. A lot of that is on, on soils that are good for recharge. So it could be fallowed farmland that you use for recharge? It could be fallowed or you can also use the, you know, during the winter and, and early spring when it's not the growing season yet, you can... You can use the, the, the cropland for a, as a place to reach. Seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So acknowledging there's no silver bullet here, mm -hmm. uh, um, what needs to be done to erase the water, the valley's overall water deficit? Um, what are some options? I mean, I think one thing you talked about were trading programs and those right. kinds of things. Right. So, you know, I think you have to look at there. There are some options for expanding mm -hmm. the, the, the pie, and that includes capturing extra runoff. You know, that's an option that, that's going to help. Um, there are some ways to repurpose water. So, you know, oil down in Kern County, on the east side of Kern County, there's some oil wells that have water that looks like it's probably of sufficient quality for certain kinds of agriculture. You know, that adds to the pie. Different ways like that. And then for the part about managing demand and reducing use, if you have trading among farmers, uh, you can reduce the costs of reducing demand because some, some fields are just more productive than others. And 
that farmer might be willing to take some, some funding uh, in exchange for making his water or her water available to somebody else. Any suggestions on dealing with the water and air quality challenges? So this is going to be a key thing where kind of looking for cooperative ways to manage this is important because we're, you know, just to give you a big picture idea of the numbers, as much as half a million acres of cropland could come out of production over time in order to bring the water uh, balance into, you know, get, get the water bank into balance. And that is, you know, looking at maybe 10% of all irrigated acreage. If that's just left there to sort of, you know, to be dust, that could be bad for, for the air quality. But if you manage some of that for habitat, um, that could be, you could get some ecosystem benefits. You might be able to use some of it for solar. People are looking at that. So there are ways for farmers to get benefits out of it and for, you know, other benefits for air quality and for habitat. We've only got about 30 seconds left. I mm -hmm. want to ask you this one last question. You argue in your report that local and regional institutions are ill-equipped to develop effective solutions for the region. And you said that state and federal agencies often don't coordinate or sometimes are even across purposes. So what are the challenges and opportunities with uh, better coordination and cooperation? So it's clear that cooperation and coordination are going to be key to making all of these things work, you know, taking it up really to the next level. I think folks in the Valley are starting to realize that, but they still need to really figure out, you know, how they're going to make that work at the local, at the local level. Well, I want to thank our guest, Alan Hannock, with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute and director of their, their Water Policy Center for joining us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for The Matterport. Thanks for joining us. A new report by the State Auditor's Office suggests that the governor's plan to ensure a reliable flow of water from a key source may not all be going according to plan. You're listening to The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. On KMJ. The San Joaquin Valley, one of the nation's most important agricultural regions, is dealing with growing water stress and a number of related environmental and public health challenges. Large parts of the valley, for example, have become increasingly dependent on unsustainable groundwater pumping. How do we tackle the valley's water issues in a cooperative, coordinated manner? We'll ask our guest, Ellen Hannock, director of the Water Policy Center for the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California and lead author of a report entitled Water Stress and a Changing San Joaquin Valley. The San Joaquin Valley's Water Challenges, Comprehensive Review. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Maddie. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Water is the foundation of America's most productive farmland, California's San Joaquin Valley. Recently, the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California published a comprehensive report dealing with the va valley's growing water imbalance and what it means not only for valley agriculture, but the valley's environment and public health. Ellen Hannock, the director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center and the author of that report, is our guest. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. So, how did the uh, ag industry become so dominant in the San Joaquin Valley? You know, Ag has really been a key industry in the San Joaquin Valley since the 19th century. And it's continued to 
really be a, a big part of the economy even to the day to it's, this day. It's changed over time, though, hasn't it? It has changed a lot. It continues to change. It's a very dynamic and creative sector. It used to be cotton was was very very big, and now that's not so much. Other other crops are more important. Even you know you go not that far back, 1980, there were over a million acres of cotton irrigated, and now it's we're down to you know practically trace amounts of, of cotton. What's happened over time since then is big expansion in orchards, both for nuts and for, for almonds. fruits. Almonds, you know, you drive around right now, they're in flower, they're uh -huh. beautiful. Um, and also um, a big expansion in dairy yeah. and the crops related to that. So are, it, it, there's kind of some confusion about the size of farms. Are they large, are they small, are they some kind of combination? All of the above. Yeah, we were quite surprised to see this actually. There are about 20,000 irrigated farms in the eight county San Joaquin wow. Valley. And so uh, the, the acres you're talking about, I think you said in your report that farms with less than 500 acres are about 25% That's of right. irrigated uh, farms. So it's not as large as maybe some people think. Uh, well, you know, right. So you've had some consolidation happening over time, yeah. and there are some very big farms, but there's still just a lot of farms that are not that big actually one of the biggest categories is quite tiny farms of 10 acres or less yeah but they're very important for some of the local economies exactly and for some communities yeah. you know your farmers markets those are often going to be those little farms yeah and those are increasingly cropping up no pun intended you know in the area um let me ask you about how farmers are doing economically are they doing well or so, not so well? You know, farming is one of those risky jobs in the sense that, you know, you've got to worry about all your inputs, but then you also got to worry about what's going to happen to your crop prices. And those move around a lot. But I can say that, you know, over time, revenues have been increasing. Inflation-adjusted revenues have been increasing quite a bit in the Valley, and that's because of these crop shifts. And, you know, people like the... the, the both California national and international markets like California products. I'm just, I'm just wondering, I don't, I don't want to get too far afield here, but just the, uh, the situation with the trade with, with other countries, that's going to really impact California agriculture, I assume. It could, you know. I think California ag would like the market to stay open for California produce. A lot of the stuff ends up in Asia, and so uh, mm -hmm. that, that's going to have some big implications. You know, uh, the, what are some of the new management challenges uh, that have come about as a result of, you know, different crops? You've got increased dairies and, and frankly, the growing vulnerability to water scarcity. Right. So, you know, Valley is a great place for agriculture if you can add the water because it's pretty dry here in the summer. Um, that means you can manage crops very well if you can add the water. But water is a scarce uh, commodity here. And it's going to become scarcer over time as the region has to get its groundwater basin into balance. So you've got, so you've got uh, situations where the w price of water is going up. Farmers are making a decision, probably an economic decision, based on what's the most, you know, uh, the one that's going to produce the most money, most revenue right. per acre, I suppose. Right. And so definitely uh, Valley Ag is becoming more water efficient, both in terms of the irrigation technology, but also how many dollars each drop of water is, is generating, and that's the crop choices especially. It, it also impacts, you know, the stuff that we have in the valley. We have, you know, vineyards and we have, you know, trees, um, and we also have just field crops. Mm -hmm. I assume that that's also an implication here with, with less water or water scarcity. Well, right. So it's kind of this trade-off because farmers have gone more toward the, the orchards and the vineyards because that generates a lot of revenue per unit of, of water, but 
you also cannot fallow that in, in a year where water's really tight. So during this recent drought, that was a lot of farmers were really on pins and needles about that. Fortunately, many of them could pump extra groundwater, but still, you, you saw some, some of that land coming out of production. Because there's an investment once they, they get the tree finally producing, and if they have a bad water situation, yeah. they lose that asset. You know, you think about it, we have a drought every summer, right? You got to water those trees or else they, they don't stick around. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, thanks for that overview of the changing nature of the Valley's agriculture. Up next, uh, what about the issue of growing water scarcity? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepler with the Maddie Institute. One of the many challenges facing San Joaquin Valley agriculture is the issue of water scarcity. Perhaps it's the most important issue. Simply stated, the region has more productive farmland than local water supplies can support. So even importing uh, water from elsewhere has not resolved the water issue. And there's a related problem of groundwater overdraft. We're discussing the Valley's water issues with Ellen Hannock, a, a water policy expert with the PPIC. Um, how has wa water uh, management changed in the Valley over time? So, you know, the Valley is a great place to grow things if you can irrigate. Um, and already back in the 1920s, um, folks had started to, to pump groundwater. Technology made some good pumping available. And you started to see this problem of more groundwater being taken out of the ground on average every year than the amount that gets naturally recharged from the rain and from being adjacent, adjacent to rivers. So over time, this problem started leading to land sinking. Subsidence, and they call subsidence. that. Subsidence. And, and that was actually one of the impetuses for some of the big projects that now deliver water from Northern California through the Delta to the Valley. Um, if you're on the west side of the valley, you see the Delta Mendota Canal, California Aqueduct. On the east side, the Fryant Kern Canal. Those are projects that are all part of getting surface water to places that were pumping more groundwater. Um, and that's been helpful, but it just hasn't been enough. So, so you're talking in your report about this water balance or imbalance uh, in the San Joaquin Valley. What are the numbers? Where does the water come from and where does it go to in the valley? Right. So we looked for the last 30 years, and on average, what we found is that a bit over half, 56%, comes from local sources. And that means the water up in the Sierra coming down through all of the rivers on the east side, all the way you know, down from the Kern all the way up to the San Joaquin, and then water that rain, you know, rainfall on the valley floor, that's 56%. That gets used directly. So more as than half comes from local Supplies. More than half, yeah, and that gets used both as surface water and that gets used as, as what we'd call sustainable groundwater because some of it recharges the basins and people pump it out. About a quarter comes from imports, and that is water that comes down from Northern California through the Delta, through the pumps at Tracy, and then goes into canals and goes on to So the Delta is very significant very significant, a quarter on average of all the water that is used in the San Joaquin Valley. And then there's a little sliver that gets directly pulled out of the delta, 6%, and then the rest, 13%, that is what we call groundwater overdraft. Yeah, and you're, you're talking in your report about this diminishing groundwater reserves. Um, what's happening in the valley? So groundwater overdraft is when you're taking out more than the amount that gets recharged. And what that leads to is the water table falls, so you have to pump deeper and deeper. It means some of the shallow wells go dry. It also can affect your water quality because sometimes deeper water is not uh, in as good shape. 
It also leads to land sinking, or what we call subsidence. So in some places, you've got infrastructure that's being damaged Roads, by this. canals. Bridges, all I've also that. heard that, that, you know, when the water is taken out, sometimes that formation can collapse, and so you lose that aquifer. It's got, well, you, you lose some of that, some of that mm -hmm. aquifer. You, we have ginormous aquifers in this valley, mm -hmm. so you're not going to lose the whole thing. Okay, so um, what started this kind of accelerated overdrafting uh, beginning around 2000? So it's been very dry. The, you know, we just got through, I, I'm going to call it and say that we're pretty much through the, 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 the latest drought because it's been so wet this year. But we had five years of, of really dry conditions. But if you look, the whole last 15 years have been drier on average than any time since the 1920s. So there's just been less surface water available to recharge our groundwater basins. That's one. Second is that more water is now coming through the delta and going all the way down to Southern California than before. And this is, you know, fair and square, it's Southern California's water. They have contracts just like folks in the valley do for some of that water. But in the old days, they weren't taking it all. So the farmers were able to get that water. Farmers got it for next to nothing. And now about half a million acre feet are going all the way down to Southern California. So this all resulted in the state law in 2014 regulating uh, managing groundwater. We were one of the last states to actually do that. Um, we were the last western state. The last, behind Texas. Yes, okay, behind so, Texas. So what did, what did that law do? So that law is very uniquely Californian in spirit because it's all about local control. Um, and it, what it says is that folks who are using groundwater at the level of individual groundwater basins have to get together, develop groundwater sustainability agencies to manage that groundwater, develop groundwater sustainability plans with a, a long-term plan for bringing that groundwater basin into balance and managing it sustainably. And then they got to implement that. Yeah, sustainability is the key word there, right? I mean, right. it's something that's going to be able to last over time. Over time. Um, so do you think the groundwater deficit can be closed? It can be closed. Um, it's not going to be easy to close it. Uh, and, and you can think about filling that gap in two ways. One way is adding more water, so bringing in more water from, you know, capturing more water from the, from the Sierra, for example, or, you know, potentially more imports. And then the other way is reducing the amount that you're pumping, so reducing use. And demand, and that can happen all kinds of ways, including changing the crops and those kinds of things. Yeah, but it's especially going to involve probably taking some land out of production. Okay. Oh, well, thanks for discussing that uh, issue of, of groundwater uh, overdrafting. It's a pretty big issue. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Up next, we're going to talk about the environmental and health uh, trade-offs of valley agriculture and what can be done to mitigate them. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hebler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, beyond water scarcity, there are a number of other issues and challenges for valley agriculture. One is uh, the environmental and the other is public health. What are the trade-offs that we have to deal with when we're dealing with this in farming regions? Our guest is Ellen Hannock, director of the PPIC's Water Policy Center. And one of the issues here is water quality, um, particularly nitrate contamination after decades of fertilizer use and dairy manure on fields. Um, how extensive is the problem and what can be done to address it? The problem is pretty extensive, especially in the southern part of the valley, in the Tulare Basin, um, very much tied to where the dairies are right now. Um, and the estimates that came out a couple years ago about this were that there are about 250,000 residents whose water sources are potentially contaminated by nitrate, which is a pretty dangerous thing at high levels. 
Yeah, that was a pretty big report they did a few years ago. That was a big study, and it was, you know, it was long in coming, really, and it was, you know, a credit to the the environmental justice community for really pushing to kind of get this on the radar at the state level. And that was that's about, I think I was reading your report, about 11% of, of that region's population. Correct. And that can cause some serious medical issues, a blue baby syndrome. Blue baby is syndrome is the one that, you know, especially, you know, vulnerable populations are always the ones most affected by these kinds of things, and young children especially. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue deals with salt accumulation um, in soils and in groundwater. It causes another problem. Um, what's causing that, and, and how is the problem being addressed? So salt is one of those things, it's, it's a tough one, because some of it is just here. It's in the soil, it's in the water. It's naturally occurring. Naturally occurring. Now, agriculture kind of can stir it up and mobilize it and, and, and accelerate that problem. We also import salt into the valley from the delta. So the same imports that are helpful from a water supply perspective, we're also bringing in some salt with that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the other issue uh, is air quality. So um, there have been noticeable improvements in air quality in the San Joaquin mm -hmm. Valley over the years. It, it still, though, has the worst air quality in the nation. Um, part of this is the natural environment. We live in a, this gigantic bowl um, surrounded by mountains. Uh, and, and there's also this, it's growing, right? So there's more traffic, and mm -hmm. that's causing, uh, contributing to the problem as well. But what about farming operations? What impact do they have on air quality? So if you think about it, you know, farming uh, stirs up the air and there's, there's dust, there's, you know, particulate matter, sort of some of the big particles that can, can cause asthma and, and other, other problems. And so over time, valley agriculture has been, uh, you know, one of the regulated um, industries in order to manage that dust, especially, you know, sort of when, when tractors and other farm equipment is moving on fields. Also managing ag waste, so you know there was a move toward biodigesters, but that has uh, run into some economic difficulties. Uh, so, so those those are some ongoing things that that farm managers have to really. And I was looking with. at this air quality issue a while ago and, and found that uh, it's actually diesels in the valley. It's diesel engines that are causing the majority of the air quality problem. And mm -hmm. so, farms also. I mean, if they're they got diesel pumps. Right. Um, they're being retrofitted and changed out. Exactly. They've also got uh, heavy-duty trucks and track old tractors. I mean, some of these tractors, they literally are using these things for 30, 40 years. Sure. You know, they're, they're going to be frugal with their... I, I remember seeing, equipment. actually, I remember seeing, I was driving through the valley, and I saw a tractor that my dad had in the 1970s, and at that point, it was 20 years old. Right. So... so they, they drive them. They Double use, classics. Right, they're right. Very, the good news is they're very efficient using things and fixing them up and keeping them going. Uh, the problem is there's some air quality issues associated with that. Let's talk about um, some of the other environmental impacts and implications for agriculture. It's not uncommon in agricultural regions that commercial farming you know, transforms the natural environment. It's done it here as well. In, in what ways? So you, you think about it. The valley floor has over 5 million acres of irrigated cropland at any given time and in addition there's some fields that are that are lying fallow so you know the combined footprint is is, is even larger of agriculture um, we've changed the way water moves you know it doesn't move naturally through rivers anymore we kind of bring it through canals and change the timing of it so the land has changed the water movement has changed and that has been hard on the the critters that live both in the rivers in the wetlands and in the upland areas in the valley yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I was reading somewhere that the soil in the valley, actually, they actually rate soil. Uh -huh. And the soil in the valley is among the richest, the best in the world. 
And so it's not surprising you had great soil with water and sunshine, mm -hmm. and you have the San Joaquin Valley. Um, so what does the future hold when it comes to the balance of these interests uh, between ag interests and, you know, conservation interests? Where's the future? So I'm an optimist about this, and I think that um, a lot of folks from the various sides of this issue really want to get to find common ground for ways that you can manage farms so that they're making money and also provide some benefits for the environment. And I think you're starting to see this in, in a number of places, sort of pilot Pilot work in where you know working lands. Farmers are making some of their uh, areas available for for habitat. Uh, I think with water, which is water allocation, which is the trickiest and the one people fight over maybe the most, there are ways forward in terms of finding some some kind of compromise solutions that get you multiple benefits yeah. ideally. And we're going to talk about those in a moment, but thank you for talking about these environmental and public health mm -hmm. trade-offs that we're dealing with. So we're going to talk about some possible solutions in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So how do we balance the water needs of Valley's agriculture with the environmental needs of the region? What approaches show the most promise? We're talking with Ellen Hannock, a water policy expert with the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. It seems to be kind of a simple supply and demand issue here. Um, you know, there's a basic imbalance between the valley's local and imported water supplies and its water demands. So how do we close that gap? Well, you can close it in two ways. You can add some more supplies or you can reduce demand. And my sense is that the solutions are going to vary across the valley because the problems, the extent of the problem is different. Some places have a bigger gap to fill than others. Um, and, you know, it's going to also depend on what kind of funds people can mobilize to, to, to add the supplies. You know, let's, let's talk specifically about groundwater for a mm -hmm. second. What are, what are some of the ways that we can deal with this issue of, of groundwater overdrafting? So everyone across the valley is going to have to develop plans to manage their groundwater basins. Now, there are some basins where if you look at the accounts... As soon as you say the word accounts, because yeah. I was just thinking as you're talking, it's a bank. It's a bank. It's, it's a water bank. It's a bank. Your water's down there. You know, water. You got inflows coming in, and you got people taking water out. So yeah. it's very much. You have to think about it like but a bank account. There's more being taken out than it's going in. More, right. So it's, it, so it's it's starting to it's running a deficit, and so in places where you've got that deficit, people are going to have to over time plan on getting that bank account into balance. They don't have to do it overnight, but they're going to have to, to make serious progress. So the first key step is actually figuring out your numbers. And we don't have good math on all of the So we really the don't know how much, how much water is there or how much it could hold. Well, or there's, do we? Uh, we, we have some idea, but what we don't know always is how much is coming out. You know, who's taking, how many straws are in the, in the basin and how much is coming out and how much is actually actively being put back in. And so, that accounting has to get better. So no, they didn't have to, prior to the, this law, they didn't have to report that. They didn't have to report it. They didn't have to even measure it. So in some places, they, they haven't been, been measuring that. Um, and, you know, they're going to they're gonna have to do that. Some places are ahead of others on that, I would say, in, across the valley. So how do you suggest we, we manage the groundwater reserves then that we do have? So, you know, I think a key thing is incentivizing people to add more water, to recharge water. So right now we're in a, in a wet 
uh, year, fortunately, after mm -hmm. some years of drought. There's a lot of extra water around. Um, you want to get that into the ground. And you can get that into the ground through recharge basins, which are n places that are really good for water seeping into the ground. Usually on the periphery of a town. Often on uh -huh. the periphery of a town, sometimes right in towns. So like <laughs> Fresno has some... We do. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you want to make sure you manage those and you protect those areas so that they, they're available for that. But then you also need to use farmland because there's a lot of it. There are 5 million acres out there. A lot of that is on, on soils that are good for recharge. So it could be fallowed farmland that you use for recharge? It could be fallowed or you can also use the, you know, during the winter and, and early spring when it's not the growing season yet, you can... You can use the, the, the cropland as a place to recharge. Seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So acknowledging there's no silver bullet here, mm -hmm. uh, um, what needs to be done to erase the water, the valley's overall water deficit? Um, what are some options? I mean, I think one thing you talked about were trading programs and those sorts right. of things. Right. So, you know, I think you have to look at there, there are some options for expanding mm -hmm. the, the, the pie, and that includes capturing extra runoff. You know, that's an option that, that's going to help. Um, there are some ways to repurpose water. So, you know, oil down in Kern County, on the east side of Kern County, there's some oil wells that have water that looks like it's probably of sufficient quality for certain kinds of agriculture. You know, that adds to the pie. Different ways like that. And then for the part about managing demand and reducing use, if you have trading among farmers, uh, you can reduce the costs of reducing demand because some, some fields are just more productive than others. And that farmer might be willing to take some, some funding uh, in exchange for making his water or her water available to somebody else. Any suggestions on dealing with the water and air quality challenges? So this is going to be a key thing where kind of looking for cooperative ways to manage this is important because, we're, you know, just to give you a big picture idea of the numbers, as much as half a million acres of Cropland could come out of production over time in order to bring the water uh, balance into, you know, get, get the water bank into balance. And that is, you know, looking at maybe 10% of all irrigated acreage. If that's just left there to sort of, you know, to be dust, that could be bad for, for the air quality. But if you manage some of that for habitat, um, that could be, you could get some ecosystem benefits. You might be able to use some of it for solar. People are looking at that. So there are ways for farmers to get benefits out of it and for, you know, other benefits for air quality and for habitat. We've only got about 30 seconds left. Mm -hmm. I want to ask this one last question. You argue in your report that local and regional institutions are ill-equipped to develop effective solutions for the region. And you said that state and federal agencies often don't coordinate or sometimes are even across purposes. So what are the challenges and opportunities with uh, better coordination and cooperation? So it's clear that cooperation and coordination are going to be key to making all of these things work, you know, taking it up really to the next level. I think folks in the Valley are starting to realize that, but they still need to really figure out, you know, how they're going to make that work at the local, at the local level. Well, I want to thank our guest, Alan Hannock, with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute and director of their, their Water Policy Center. For joining us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Matterport. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed on the Matterport are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matterport, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org.
The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.